I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm Anushka Saxena, a research analyst with the Takshashila Institution's Indo-Pacific Studies program, and I'm joined by Manoj Keval Ramani, the chairperson of the program. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing a host of meetings that recently concluded in Jakarta, Indonesia, where China and various other countries from around the world, as well as the 10 ASEAN countries, participated. These meetings include the ASEAN Regional Forum's Foreign Ministers Meeting, the 13 East Asia Summit Foreign Ministers Meeting, and a bunch of multilateral and trilateral meetings such as the ASEAN Plus Three, the China-Japan ROK Trilateral, and bilateral meetings like the one between China and the US, China-Singapore, China-Vietnam, so on and so forth. And there were a lot of interesting comments made at these meetings. So Chinese representative in these meetings was Wang Yi, who is the director of the Office of Foreign Affairs of the Communist Party of China, and the Foreign Minister of China, Qin Dang, was, as we were told, unable to attend due to health issues. And uh, across three these uh, bilateral, trilateral, multilateral meetings, we observed that Wang Yi had a lot of points to make. China had. multi-point proposal to put forward to all the ASEAN and other countries participating with regards to contentious issues like Taiwan, the South China Sea, the NATOization of the Asia Pacific and some other more niche issues like um, Japan's release of nuclear waste into waters and other topics that concern China like supply chain decoupling and food security. and uh, in uh, in our conversation today we're going to be focusing on some of the key aspects of these meetings which include wang yi's meetings with us state secretary antony blinken wang yi's comments at the asean regional forum and the east asia summit and of course uh, wang yi's interaction on the sideline of the ars foreign ministers meeting with indian foreign minister s j shankar so welcome to the conversation manoj hey thank you so much so to begin with What do you think was China's central message to these countries across this slew of meetings? Do you think there were a few points that stood out, or do you think there was the same old repetition of how China expresses its concerns, how China says that ASEAN countries should be free to choose, and how it kind of targets its messaging towards the U.S. in saying that the U.S. should refrain from interfering in regional matters? So. was that repetition kept well in alive or were there any new messages any new proposals that kind of stood out to you and could be developed into something more substantive or meaningful in future conversations hey good question so i think that the broader message by the chinese side remains constant right and that is one of china being an opportunity and not a threat whereas the united states fundamentally fueling a cold war like situation in the region So I think that message has been consistent for some time now, and it continues to remain the case. Everyone knows that there is quite a bit of anxiety in East Asia with regard to the potential loss 
you know, what great power rivalry could bring for the region when everybody in the region wants to sort of preserve the economic dynamism that the region has enjoyed and not sort of get sucked into choosing sides. So I think that's the trend that's been there for some years now and that trend continues. I would say that perhaps at this point of time, what we are seeing is a much more constructive engagement. At least that's what we're also, the messages that we're getting also from actors in the region. So for example, the Singaporean foreign minister's interview after the meetings in Indonesia seem to suggest that there is, it is a much more constructive set of meetings where there was less sort of blame game there was less name calling. I think the Indonesian side also when they spoke, the Indonesian foreign minister when she spoke, uh, was quite categorical that, you know, we want to see something constructive. The region must remain stable. Um, the Indo-Pacific is not a battleground, if I'm quoting more correctly. So I think that that is essentially what's the backdrop of what is happening and what was happening in Jakarta. The effort is to try and make sure that you focus on the development agenda. And I think that from both the United States and China, you saw a toning down. I mean, I wouldn't say that the Chinese side had toned down the message. I think it was still quite sharp. But from the United States, at least, you saw a much more toned down message. I think, you know, Blinken's engagements with other actors also, where he was explaining the idea of what a free and open Indo-Pacific would mean. I mean, he, I think he talked about it quite clearly and he uh, it was non-confrontational. It was not necessarily something where you were, you know, trying to target uh, a particular country. I mean, if I'm correct, Lincoln quoted, if I'm quoting Lincoln correctly, I think he said something like, you know, we were in for a, we want a free, open, prosperous, secure, connected, and resilient Indo-Pacific. And he explained that as being, countries being free to choose their own paths and their own partners. Uh, the problems are dealt with openly uh, and there is no coercion and rules are reached upon transparently and fairly. You know, whether it's freedom in terms of ideas, people, all of that, whether it's in the seas, whether it's in the skies, whether it's in cyberspace. So I think the idea is therefore not necessarily presenting an us versus them to the region. So in that sense, I think it was semi-constructive from what we have seen in the past. So in that sense, I think that is the backdrop in which all of this has happened. Did the Chinese side present any new ideas and whether it's any new outcomes? I think that from a meta point of view, the new outcome that was there was the guidelines with regard to the negotiation of the Code of Conduct of the South China Sea. Granted, we don't have the guidelines in public. At least I've not been able to access them so far. So we don't know what they contain. But at least there's an agreement on how you would negotiate forward on the South China Sea. We can talk about that going forward. But to me, that's the sort of broad lay of the land. Right, absolutely. And I think there was definitely an economic and developmental overtone to all conversations at the Chinese end as well. We saw a lot of emphasis on the regional comprehensive economic partnership, kind of push for Hong Kong becoming a part of RCEP. Then, of course, there was drum beating on the successors of the Belt and Road Initiative. And I believe Blinken and various other foreign ministers of Asian countries also said that they support China's global initiatives which was definitely something significant and constructive as opposed to what we've seen in the past. So from the readout that the Chinese Foreign Ministry published on what Wang Yi discussed with Blinken, we see that they propose a three-point way forward for U.S.-China relationship in which they argue that the two sides need to resolutely stop grey rhinos, properly handle black swans and thoroughly remove tigers blocking the way. And this is what will be needed to create conditions and remove disruptions and stabilize the US-China relations. 
On this front, do you think that the message from China is that it is the U.S. that is causing the uh, that is the primary causal factor in the disruption in U.S.-China relations, and the U.S. needs to kind of reflect on how it's approaching China to be able to uh, mend the relationship? And do you think some of what the ASEAN countries or some of the statements of the ASEAN countries' foreign ministers reflected this kind of sentiment, or uh, was it again the similar path of them not being sucked into choosing sides and rather? waiting for the two sides to manage their situation by themselves. Yeah, I think that from a Chinese point of view, and this they have made the case for quite some time now, their argument has been that the United States has fundamentally misperceived uh, and misinterpreted what China's rise is and what China's ambitions are. And it is that perception which is leading to what they call erroneous policies. And I think Wang Yi reiterated that, right? He called on Blinken to adopt a rational and pragmatic attitude you know, for the United States to adopt a rational and pragmatic attitude to work with China. And he talked about the need to advance consultations on uh, guiding principles for China-US relations. One sort of interesting takeaway that I have from the meeting between Blinken and Wang Yi was that Chinese side said that, you know, and I'll quote uh, the report that quotes Wang Yi, he said that the United States, that China and the United States uh, should work together to expand diplomatic and security communication channels improve the effectiveness of communications and facilitate people-to-people exchanges. So the people-to-people exchange piece, I think, is already something that they are working on after Blinken visited Beijing recently. But I think the diplomatic and the security communication channels uh, is something that, if you remember, when Blinken had visited China, was one of the things that was you know not achieved. Um, he categorically said that the United States wants to establish direct security conversation with uh, the Chinese side, and that's not happening. Now, the Chinese re- demand on that has been that its defense minister is under American sanctions. Uh, they want the sanctions to be lifted. The Americans have said we are not lifting the sanctions, but that does not prevent dialogue, and it's basically gone nowhere. And the American concern essentially has been around, look, we need to set up guardrails when it comes to our security activities so that we can avoid any escalation unintentionally. Um, so I think that that one bit in the statement is quite worth noting. Perhaps it denotes some sort of forward movement. So I think at the end of the day, both sides still remain deeply suspicious about each other, particularly from Beijing's perspective when it comes to what it defines as its core issue, which is Taiwan. Uh, I think it remains deeply suspicious in Wang Yi's statements. He also talked about how, you know, the US must stop its scientific, economic and technological suppression of China and lift unreasonable and unlawful restrictions on China and Chinese personnel. So I think that some of these points of friction sustain. But what we are seeing is gradual dialogue. Um, In the backdrop of this meeting, the US uh, climate envoy, John Kerry, has been in Beijing. And this is the third senior cabinet-level official visiting China in the past few weeks after Blinken, then Treasury Secretary Jared Yellen, and now John Kerry. And we know that we are hearing that the Commerce Secretary is going next. So I think that there is momentum being built up to try and find at least some degree of familiarity, some degree of common ground from both sides. I have a feeling that we are likely to see this leading up to the APEC summit in San Francisco. And let's see what happens after that. But at least until then, I think there's an effort to try and stabilize. So I would say this business of rhinos, tigers and swans is related to you know, ensuring that things don't get derailed, at least for the moment. While you work on these long-term things like the guiding principles for the relationship, 
uh, and expanding channels of communication. So I would say that it was a you know from the perspective of U.S.-China ties uh, and stabilizing them, it was a positive meeting. And the fact that your meeting is firstly positive is something that's worth noting. Right, that makes sense. And I think when China says that the two sides must uh, return to the Bali agenda, they clearly mean that sanctions against Li Shangfu must be taken down and that becomes a precursor to security or military-to-military conversations kind of returning back to the fore. I would not necessarily interpret it as that. I think that if there can be enough will on both sides to try and find... And to me, essentially, why is it that Beijing has been playing tough on security issues is one reason is because it realizes that the Americans are concerned and it is their primary concern. Secondly, it realizes that it holds the cards when it comes to escalation, right? It allows for Beijing to push back on American presence in the waters surrounding China without necessarily facing certain kinds of consequences. It allows it to redefine what those red lines are. So I think that is much more important than just the sanctions. The sanctions against Li Shangpu are, you know, they are irritant. They are a symbolic gesture of equality that Beijing desires. So I'm not downplaying that that they're unimportant. But I think that there is a much more important thing in there, which is that the lack of a clear dialogue under whatever pretext allows Beijing to establish. And it is uncomfortable with the idea, with the American conception of guard race, because it sees that as the United States legitimizing its presence and asking China to accept containment. So I think that there are sort of slightly broader things at play as opposed to just the sanctions in itself. Absolutely. Yes, quite broad. And then, there, like you said, there is also the APEC summit to look forward to. And of course, in a slightly less broader sense, the domestic political agenda that comes with the 2024 elections, because usually with elections, relations can hit a low or a high. And some stability would be kind of a good card to play for the US political parties in the upcoming elections. And of course, you mentioned that China has opposed time and time again. And again, during these meetings, the scientific and technological, quote-unquote, stranglehold that the US is placing against China. And uh, you also mentioned people to people ties, which at higher political level are definitely taking place. But the talent issue in this scientific and technological innovation war might ultimately also factor in in, in some of these conversations and hopefully will be addressed in the guide in the longer term guidelines and guardrails that come in between the two sides. So coming back to the issue of guidelines and you referenced the guideline document that is set up to speed speed up the negotiations on the much overdue code of conduct between China and the ASEAN. And there was also a joint statement that was released in the ASEAN-China post-ministerial conference, which was on commemorating and reflecting on the 20th anniversary of China's accession to the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation. And not only did it also mention the speeding up of the process of bringing about a code of conduct, it also talks about the fact that the code of conduct should be based on the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, so on and so forth. And we also see that two days ago, the Office of the Solicitor General in Philippines came out with a special team to study possible legal action that can be taken against China because of its continued refusal to accept the 2016 arbitral ruling. So do you think that these negotiations on the code of conduct or the conversations that took place among the foreign ministers and the representatives during these meetings are a substantive next step 
towards the code of conduct and towards mending of ties between the two sides? Or do you think it will take much more of a behavioral shift at China's end for ASEAN to kind of start trusting it and to kind of to also trust the code of conduct process? To me, this is not really a legal issue. To me, this is a political issue and it's likely to remain. Legal aspects are key component of the politics of it, but to me, this is fundamentally a political issue. So while the new guidelines, and again, I don't have access to the guidelines, are sounds like a positive step. Let me quote what the Singaporean foreign minister said after these meetings during an interview on, on the visit to Jakarta. And I'll quote him, it's a slightly long quote, but bear with me. He says, I believe there is political will to move forward. But again, I just want to caution that this is a complicated subject. It has been 20 years since we signed the declaration on the code of parties in the South China Sea, on the conduct of parties in the South China Sea. The DOC was meant to be an interim, a stopgap, until the COC, which is the code of conduct, should be settled. It has taken 20 years. I am not in a position to give you a timeline for when we will reach the destination. But for what it is worth, the political will has expressed. So essentially, you're not really seeing this as a breakthrough agreement. It's a next small step in what is likely to be a long process going forward. So I don't therefore see this as necessarily a legal issue that needs to be resolved. This is a matter of politics and this is a matter of power politics. You mentioned what's happening in the Philippines. And during these meetings, I mean, Wangi specifically spoke about the South China Sea. And he sought to shift blame to quote-unquote extra-regional actors and using trains like look, the South China Sea is one of the safest and most open waters in the world for navigation uh, and we don't want navigational hegemony in the name of freedom of navigation. And, you know, when he started, when, uh, when talking about, you know, what is, what is needed for a solution, he said things like, you know, don't send your advanced warships and aircraft to the region. Don't provoke and exploit differences amongst regional actors. Don't interfere in our situation without understanding the actual situation. We don't need instructors from outside. and We have the wisdom and capability to handle our challenges. All that is great. But the fact is that the region has not been able to arrive at any sort of, you know, fair assessment of what to do. There are, you know, yes, you've been able to sustain freedom of navigation. You've been able to sustain certain kinds of uh, trade. But that has come at a certain cost as China has built its power. So you're seeing today increasing frictions. It's also been quite aggressive in pushing back against the Philippines of late. It's, you know, Wangi once again called the arbitration agreement in the Hague agreement as something that was, you know, political manipulation and not something that China therefore not, did not participate in. So I don't see the issue ended. I don't see the guidelines as substantive at present. I think that the region is divided. I think that until I think the power imbalance favors Beijing and Beijing has it's a, it, Beijing's choice to drag its feet or to move forward. We don't have a draft COC in public. Harmonizing all the drafts that different entities, different actors gave it has been a complicated process. So I don't necessarily see it as a significant movement forward. I think that there is some movement forward. There is political will right now. But this is not something that's going to get resolved anytime soon. And therefore, it is in the best interest of everybody to try and make sure that at least military activity is sort of regulated with certain rules and trade does not get disrupted because that will adversely affect everybody. And I think to that degree, there is some agreement, but even not entirely, right? because we're seeing greater frictions in the water between China and others. So I don't think that we've seen any significant outcome from this, which one can look and say, you know, we are much closer to a settlement and a resolution of the dispute than we were said before these meetings. Stay tuned to All Things Policy. We'll be right back after a short commercial break. 
absolutely. And I think there was discussion on the second draft of COC as well. And of course, the issuance of these guidelines, like you said, these are just milestones in a much longer process and it's already taken 20 years. And regarding the point that you made about the disputes in the South China Sea being attributable to external interference, most likely the US and its allies, I guess seeing some kind of a follow-up in the Chinese message at these meetings from what China had to say about discussions at the recently concluded NATO summit. We also saw that after the NATO summit concluded, China's perception of what was discussed there was that NATO is seeking business in a region that it's not supposed to be in. The NATO summits uh, featured discussions with Australia, New Zealand, Japan and South Korea. And China said similar things at the foreign ministers meetings at the ARF and the East Asia summit where it argued that some NATO countries follow block confrontation. All of this is not necessary. We don't need this outdated Cold War mentality. So do you think China also, China in general and Bangi in specific also sounded this kind of warning to ASEAN countries that, you know, you should keep your engagement with NATO limited, not only ASEAN countries, but also Japan and South Korea. Do you think that that message was alive and well at these meetings? Yeah, I think that was one of the central messages that the Chinese side had throughout these meetings. I think one of its core argument was that China's rise and China's modernization over the next, this next process of modernization is an opportunity for ASEAN and others. And, uh, you know, the West's engagement, particularly the U.S.'s engagement in, you know, in the region is detrimental. And I think that is a fundamental message that the Chinese side was giving throughout this entire set of meetings. I think it was interesting. I, I give you some examples, right? So when you had the ASEAN plus three meeting, you know, like you said, Wang, he talked about Hong Kong, he talked about RCEP, he talked about, you know, how China will continue to support the ASEAN, the emergency rice reserve mechanism. It will support food security. It, he talked about how there is, you know, China supports the ASEAN statement on the development of it, ASEAN's basic ASEAN EV ecosystem. And it will work in that regard. It will work on poverty alleviation, you know, rural development and so on and so forth. So its argument was that, look, China is presenting you a development opportunity and it will continue to work on those economic grounds, trying to build this sort of economic interplay between China and the ASEAN countries, ASEAN as a group as a whole, but also ASEAN countries. Uh, it promised lots of, for example, to Vietnam, there were commitments of, you know, hey, we'll buy more of your products and we get more of your products to come into China. And the Vietnamese side, I was very impressed by their foreign ministry statement, which said that Vietnam expects expanded exports to China. So it's not just you can't be making these empty commitments. Wang Yi was also talking about when he spoke to the Indonesian foreign minister, the focus was on a green development, digital economy, poverty, food security. So you're talking about these core issues uh, in the context of China being an opportunity. And then you juxtapose this with the idea that there are three things that you need to be extremely vigilant about in this region. The first is the so-called Indo-Pacific strategy of certain states, which his argument was that impacts at, at its core impacts the centrality of ASEAN and whatever cooperation framework that exists. The second is NATO's attempt to get in the region. And there have been lots of commentaries and lots of articles by analysts and official commentators in Chinese media about the Asia-Pacificization of NATO and how, you know, summit that ended in Vilnius essentially is telling us that NATO wants to move towards the Asia-Pacific and it's attempting to do so. So yeah, so the argument that Wang Yi had was that you don't want this, this will destroy the peace in the region, this will destroy stability in the region. And the third point that he made was, again, be careful of extra-regional powers undermining you know, cooperation in the region because of NATO. 
because of the South China Sea issue. So this was its core argument that China is an opportunity, the United States is a threat and, the, and NATO, which is US-led and a quote-unquote tool for American hegemony, is a threat to the region and the region must reject this. In another sort of core argument, which was that Taiwan is something which is a flashpoint for everybody to keep in mind because it isn't it is an internal matter for the PRC and nobody must have local stand nobody has local standing on it. So if you want a stable region, you must support the one China principle and you must not support any sort of foreign interference in in, in the Taiwan issue. So those were his core arguments and you could see that to ASEAN members also, but you could also see that with regard to his meeting with the EU's foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell, where he again talked about how Look, we have no fundamental conflicts of interest. Uh, you know, we both have very similar worldviews in many ways. We want the United Nations based system to sustain. So it's your responsibility to not waver and backpedal and continue the direction without necessarily allowing third parties to interfere and pursue your own strategic independence and make a quote unquote independent judgment. So again, the entire argument is one of the US, NATO, the US's Indo Pacific strategy is a threat to peace and security, whereas China presents an opportunity and therefore you must reject that. So I think that was very strongly reflected and I think this is, some, this is something that's going to continue in the weeks and months and years to come as this China-US contestation and not just China-US contestation, but China's friction with the West also continues to sustain. Right, absolutely, I agree. And even to the EU, while speaking with Boral uh, Wang, he said that he proposed the same development-oriented model where he said that China is ready to work with the EU to leverage complementary advantages and the China wants to support EU's global gateway strategy. And in that sense, it's, it kind of respects EU's strategic autonomy and uh, decision-making uh, free from US influence. I have one a quick funny question for you, Manoj. What did you think of uh, Wang Yi's meeting with S. Shankar? Of course, there was um, a brief discussion of border situation and Wang Yi told Shankar that, oh, you know, we are these two great regional civilizational powers. We need to be free of mutual suspicion and go for mutual support. So do you think this is finally the kind of moderation that we were looking forward to in China's stance towards India? Or, or we need to see something substantive play out on the grounds for this to be realized? Yeah, I don't think that there is any moderation. I think that, I mean, again, I think it's good that both of them are meeting. I think it's important for both sides to talk, but I don't see any moderation. I don't see any changes in terms of what's happening. The one outcome point that I think was interesting was that they both agreed and both sides said this, and, you know, there's a principled agreement, uh, principled consensus on the launch of the BRICS expansion process. Uh, we know that India has been quite cautious about this expansion process. India is not necessarily very keen on the BRICS becoming diluted from what its original objective was to becoming this block which the Chinese and the Russians potentially maneuver in an anti-Western direction. And an example of that is, for example, the talk about having a BRICS currency, which India quite clearly said makes no sense at this point of time. So I, I think that there is cautious around that. So I'm quite curious to see what that principal consensus is and what that means in action, because it's uh, a principal consensus is quite sort of high level. Uh, action points are much more useful. Yeah. They talked about uh, the next uh, core commander meeting, but there was no date to it. It was as an early date, you know, so that's fine. And Wangi reiterated, you know, specific issues must not define the overall relationship, which is at the heart of the India-China, you know, friction at the moment. India believes that, look, 
you can't have a relationship where you have such abnormality at the border, where you have such frictions at the border and such deployments at the border, while saying that let's have a normal overall. That's not just some specific issue. That's, uh, you know, that's a significant part that's, a, that's core to the relationship. He also, I think Wang Yi also talked about how, you know, China was concerned about the actions taken against Chinese companies in India. And again, this all this tells you is that the relationship is currently in a very negative state and it's likely to sustain in that state. So I don't think that the meeting necessarily tells us that we are on the mend, that the relationship is on the mend. I think that we'll have to wait for some months and see uh, as we hit the G20 summit, Xi Jinping travels to Delhi. If there is a bilateral meeting between Xi Jinping and Modi, that will probably give us some direction and it will give us a signal that the relationship is perhaps on the mend possibly. But as long as we don't see movement on the border and movement, uh, direct dialogue between the two leaders also, it just tells you that things are not normal. There is a lot to look forward to in the relationship. The state of the relationship, of course, bad. And I agree with you that until and unless there is constant conversation between the two sides, beginning with this meeting on the sidelines of the ARS Foreign Minister Summit, as well as on a more military to military level with the co-commander level dialogue, there will be no significant improvement on the ground. And of course, China has in the recent past accused India of mistreating its journalists in the country, mistreating its businesses. And uh, India has given its appropriate reasons to take the kind of economic action that it does against some of the Chinese entities operating in the country. And these are all symptoms of this worsening trajectory in the relationship, which again uh, needs to be uh, mended both with continued high-level and sub-level dialogues, as well as other more abstract aspects of the relationship, such as people-to-people dialogue, cooperation on some aspects of trade, so on and so forth. And of course, there is a desire at the Indian side to be treated as a Chinese equal in the regional order, to be treated as a pool, which currently China is not willing to concede on, among other things. And uh, I think this would be an important step for the two sides to gain what they both emphasize is important for the relationship, which is mutual trust. With that, thank you so much, Manoj, for your insights. And thank you so much to our audience for tuning into another episode of All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in. Hey, hey, it's been another great week on the IVM Podcast Network. On All Things Policy, Ananya Desai and Rohan Pai discuss recurrent bans on fireworks during festive seasons in India and discuss possible solutions to tackle India's air pollution problem. On the Habit Coach Podcast, Ashton Doctor welcomes Sahil Mehta, an esteemed mountaineer and author of the book Break Free. Sahil shares a transformative experience which became the catalyst for embracing discipline and fulfillment. The episode explores the profound impact of vulnerability on personal growth. 
Folks, if you like our shows, do spread the word. Tell your friends and don't forget to rate and review them wherever you're listening to them. Follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. You'll also find all our shows on YouTube at youtube.com slash IVM Podcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week. Omidyar Network India, Abbott, IDFC First Bank and Save Life Foundation. Thank you for making this possible.